You know, I've never understood how people can say the Christian life is boring. God is transforming you right now into glory. Transformation into glory is utterly fascinating and joy-inducing. And you get to participate in that. You're listening to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today we get to part two of a message from Dr. Gatsky called Glory That Transforms. It takes us into 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 to 18, and it was preached at Moody Bible Institute's Founders Week. Now, Doc, one of the common things in this, and it's repeated over and over again, is one word. It's the word glory. Now, we throw that around a lot. How often do you see people really grasping the depth of what glory truly is? Yeah, it's a tough term to try to get your arms around because I think it can mean different things depending upon how you use it, right? Yeah. And we see that God is the God of glory. We see that in the Bible. We see that in this passage. Glory at its heart simply means splendor or beauty, but it's more than a simple beauty, isn't it? It's something that enraptures you. And so when we speak about the glory of God, we're, we're sort of mixing in all of these ideas of his holiness, his perfection, his radiance and his beauty, his power and his might that are all sort of wrapped into this concept that God is the God of glory. And now the word appears a whole bunch in scripture, but in terms of people encountering the glory of God is pretty rare, isn't it? Yeah, there's not too many instances where people come in that type of contact with God. Uh, And we do see it as referenced in this text with Moses. More than that, though, we see in the Bible that God's glory is displayed through the things that he does. And maybe one way to think about it is, have you ever had an experience in life that was so amazing that you were changed as a person because of that experience? Wow, that's a big question. I don't know if I could go that far. Yeah. But yeah, there's been pivotal moments in life that make you turn. Yeah, because most of our change happens slowly and incrementally over time, right? But sometimes we have such a profound experience that we're changed by that experience. It could be negative or positive. What we see when people encounter God is such a profound experience of his glory that they are transformed. Let's dig into part two of this message from Dr. Gatsky called Glory That Transforms. We'll get to it right now. The Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry, the ministry of the Spirit that followed him, the ministry that is permanent in its nature, it will not change between the day of its inauguration until the day of Christ's return. And it is the standard by which we all enter in eternity. So it enjoys the greater glory, the greater honor, the greater beauty, the greater splendor. It is a reflection of the very glory of God himself. And so you see all three of these comparisons. Great glory that's displayed in the old covenant, but an even greater glory in the message of the gospel. And the same can be said, by the way, when contrasting the new covenant of God against any ideology, system of thought, religious set of beliefs, Now, we started out this morning by saying that part of the goal was to encourage us from lesser things to greater things, to not think of your fanning the flame merely as some form of 
self-help or personal improvement. Because you grow and you are transformed because the glory of God himself is displayed to you in an ongoing way. I hope you know this, many of you probably do, but you live in the greatest time in the history of the human race. You live in a privileged time. And the reason it's privileged is because the glory of God displayed to you through the new covenant compels the growth of your calling. The glory is transcendent, it's permanent, it displays righteousness. The glory of God displayed to you compels the growth of your calling. And Paul, in the second part of this message or this chapter, helps us to understand how that is the case. It's one thing to say that it does it, but how does it do it? How does this glory move you forward? And he gives you three specific ways that this happens. There's dozens more. But the first one is that he says that hope leads to boldness. You can look at it with me in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul Beaten, slandered, is still bold. He bold because he knows the end and therefore he can endure the middle. You see, Christian, you know the end. <laughs> and if you know the end, you can actually thrive in the middle. You know how the story of humanity concludes. You know who is victorious. You know all the ones that stand victorious with their king. You know how the story ends. This is so important in a time when there is so much cultural anxiety in our day. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen with two major wars in the world? What's going to happen with the next presidential election? Your hope in Christ gives you confidence you don't need to be anxious because you know the end and therefore you can thrive in the middle. You can be like the marathon runner who hits the wall in mile 17 or 18 or 19 but pushes through because they know the end. You can be like the prize fighter who's getting his bell rung in the third round but he keeps his feet because he knows he can outlast the opponent. You can be like the person who is in the 18th year of their marriage and it's hard. And you don't know if you want to fight any longer, but you do it because you love God. And so you keep striving to honor faithfulness and the faithfulness of your spouse, and they keep striving. And because of mutual faithfulness, they know God will indeed heal and bless, and their marriage will get better. The veil is the opposite of being bold. And unlike Moses, Paul enjoys boldness, and so can you. Now, I love Renaissance art. I, yeah. That's two of us. I don't know about anybody else. Now, unlike whoever said that, I, I don't pretend to know or be well-educated in Renaissance art, but I really appreciate the style of the paintings or the sculptures historical significance, 
and the meaning that they portray. About six years ago, a world record auction was held in the art world. It was a painting that was believed to be the last privately held painting by Leonardo da Vinci, and it went to auction. It's called Salvatore Mundi, which means Savior of the World. It's a painting of Jesus. Its former owner had purchased it just four years before for a meager $127 million. And he decided to sell it. And so it went up for auction with Christie's Auction House, and it had a backed guarantee of at least $100 million. And as the auction began, the room was tense. There was some questions about the provenance, the history of this painting. Was it really da Vinci? Was it not da Vinci? The experts used to say no, and now they say yes. Was it going to get the $100 million? It didn't take long for the bid to climb past $200 million, and the room became a buzz. And higher and higher the price climbed. Multiple bidders were involved, and now in the hundreds of millions, some were dropping out. The painting was full of splendor. It was beautiful. And the hammer finally fell at a price of $400 million. And when the buyer's premium was added in, the final sale price for Salvatore Mundi was $450 million. Somebody bought Jesus for $450 million. But here's the thing. The joke's on them. Because you can have them for free. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a permanent ministry of the Spirit that Paul gives to you, and it gives you the opportunity to be bold. Bold in your faith, bold in your confidence, bold in your obedience, bold in your evangelizing, bold in your stand against those who oppose the Lord. And it's going to take glory-fueled, hope-inducing boldness to be faithful in the days ahead. Because the days are dark. Glory of God is displayed to you, and it compels your growth in this calling. We see in verses 14 and 16 that Jesus lifts the veil over our hearts. And you might say, well, I thought it was God's glory that was veiled. Well, there was not only a veil over Moses' face, But for many of the people, there was a veil over their hearts. This was true of the Israelites in Paul's time when the Old Testament law was read and the chief purpose of that law was pointing people to the Savior and when it was read, the veil remained over their hearts. They were hardened. Verse 16 says, But when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And for Israel, the rejection of Jesus as the Savior who forgives only hardened them further and it kept them under the veil. Sadly, the only one who could lift the veil was the one that they were rejecting. But the same not needn't be true for you or for me. 
We all know people who are hardened toward God. Those who are hardened toward Jesus. Perhaps it's due to hurt. Perhaps it's due to apathy. Perhaps it's due to self-determination or pride. More often than not, it can be distilled down to the very fact that we all want to be the king. We all want to live our own life, our own way, and we don't want to submit or surrender to anybody else. But the veil's there. A classic example of this is the almost conversion of Lord Kenneth Clark, one of Great Britain's most prominent art historians and authors. He produced a BBC series called Civilization. And in an autobiographical account, Clark writes that when he was living in a villa in France, he had a very curious experience. He writes, I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but it did not seem to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. This state of mind lasted for several minutes, but wonderful as it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of my actions. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad, and perhaps, after all, it was a delusion, for I was in every way unworthy of such a flood of grace. Gradually, the effect wore off, and I made no no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I had felt the finger of God, quite sure. And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. What a sad account of someone who saw or experienced even just a glimpse of glory. But just like the Israelites in the camp, the veil remained. But Paul says, when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And the application couldn't be more plain. If you want a relationship with God, but you're hardened, turn to Jesus. Ask Jesus to come into your life. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins. Ask the Lord Jesus to be your Lord. And you will by promise, experience the glory of God. The veil will be lifted. The heart of stone will become the heart of flesh. The Spirit will work within you and you will see God clearly for who he is. That's the second benefit of how God transforms us in his glory. And the third is this. It says in verse 18, very simply, that we all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord. Let me pause on that. Beholding the glory of the Lord, which is one of these words that has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You are able to experience 
the glory of God right now without the veil. Your heart doesn't have to remain veiled. Your sight doesn't have to be veiled. God's glory need not be veiled. To be transformed from one degree of glory to another means that you're not only given external or behavioral transformation, but you are given internal and moral transformation. God gives you a new heart. He gives you a new heart as Jesus lifts the veil. You are being transformed from glory. You're being transformed to glory. And when the king returns and all things are reckoned to himself, the spirit who has held us and grown us and transformed us will cause us to reflect that glory even more. You know, I've never understood how people can say the Christian life is boring. I just don't get it. I mean, one of many things is probably happening. Either you've just given up on obeying, you've given up on trying to learn who God is, you've fallen prey to your sin, you've stopped seeking the depths of God, or you've stopped relying on Christ because God is transforming you right now into glory. Transformation into glory is utterly fascinating and joy-inducing. And you get to participate in that. The glory of God is displayed to you and it compels the growth of your calling. Now, those who've gone before us display a transformation from glory to glory. They display a flame that has been fanned and held until that flame is distinguished upon their departure from this earth. One such example is in the life of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the most prolific preacher in Great Britain and the United States of America 100 years before Moody Bible Institute was founded. It's hard to overestimate his reach. At a time with no technology, he preached over 18,000 times to over 10 million people. So captured by the glory of God, the new covenant, Whitfield took every single opportunity he could to express that glory to others. And in the process, he himself was being transformed from glory to glory. Biographer Arnold Dalmore tells that by noon on Saturday, September 29th, 1770, Whitfield reached the town of Exeter, New Hampshire. He had not planned to preach there, but on arriving found that he could not refrain from doing so. That is, an outdoor platform had been erected, and a large company of people had gathered and were waiting to hear him. And as he made his way toward the assembled congregation, an elderly bystander gave him one of those encouragements that a preacher never wants to hear before they take the platform. He said, Sir, you look like you're more fit to go to bed than to preach. <laughs> to which 
Mr. Whitfield answered, True, sir. But turning aside, he clasped his hands, and looking up, he spoke, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not weary of thy work. If I had not yet finished my course, he continued, let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. Another gentleman who was present wrote that Mr. Whitfield rose, he stood erect, and his appearance alone was a powerful sermon. He remained several minutes unable to speak and then said, I will wait for the gracious assistance of God, for he will, I am certain, assist me once more to speak his name. And then he delivered perhaps one of his best sermons. I go, he cried. I go to a rest prepared. My sun has arisen and my aid from heaven has given light to many. It is now about to set. No, it is about to rise to the zenith of immortal glory. Many may outlive me on earth, but they cannot outlive me in heaven. Oh, thought divine, I shall soon be in a world where time, age, pain, and sorrow are unknown. My body fails, my spirit expands. How willingly I would live to preach Christ, but I die to be with him. Whitfield's sermon on the occasion was from the scripture, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. It was two hours in length. And though preached under the disadvantage of a stage in open air, it was delivered with such clearness and eloquence and pathos that many of the hearers stated it was the greatest sermon that they ever heard from him. Following that tremendous effort, Whitfield continued his journey, and late that afternoon he arrived at the home of Reverend Jonathan Parsons, the pastor of Old South Presbyterian Church in Newberry, Port, Massachusetts. Parsons reported that while they were at supper, I asked Mr. Whitfield how he felt after his long journey, and he said that he was tired. Therefore, he supped early and would go to bed. But by that time, in the streets, in front of the house, people had gathered, and they began to make their way toward the door. And as Whitfield began to make his way up the stairs, several of them at the door were begging him to preach. Unwilling, despite his weariness, to forego any opportunity to declare the gospel, he responded to the request, and he stood on the landing, halfway up the stairs, candle in hand, preaching Christ. He was soon greatly alive to his subject and becoming heedless of the time, he continued to speak and continued to speak until finally the candle flickered, burned itself out, and died away. That dying flame and the burned-out candle 
were representative that evening of the man himself and of his life. And the next morning, George Whitfield died. And so it can be of you, recipient of grace, observer of glory, agent of that glory, fan into flame the gift that God's given you. His glory, the glory of God, is displayed to you every single day. And it compels you toward that type of growth. You're listening to A Better Word, and once again, that was Dr. Nick Gatsky of Old North Church in Canfield preaching a message called Glory That Transforms. Can't believe it, but we're getting close to the end of the year here on A Better Word and everywhere else on earth. Yeah. <laughs> not just Time here. Time flies. Now, I'm guessing you're not a guy that can make it till midnight anymore. You're getting older. You got a bunch of kids. Yeah. Do you make it to midnight New Year's Eve? I could, but I usually don't. And part of that's because my wife is probably in bed by 830. So it's kind of thirty. Kind of boring to sit there by yourself <laughs> right. as the ball drops. Well, yeah, and it's it's pretty not exciting. I mean, yeah. the same thing happens every year. Right. God keeps on ruling on the throne. You know, it all just happens. So you don't have to stay up late for that. I don't. No. But it is a calendar year end, and for those of us who work in nonprofit Christian ministry, it's a real important part of the year to remind you that we need your support. It is because the vision hasn't changed. Time marches on. But more and more people still need to hear the gospel, be nourished by God's word. We know that the need is great. And so that's why we do what we do. And we need partners to be able to do that. And you don't have to stay up late. <laughs> no. You can give right now, actually. Go to abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.